0: Greetings, everyone, on Planet Husky, and welcome to episode 16 of UConn 360. It's the only podcast in the galaxy that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka.
1: What up, Planet Husky?
0: Ken Best. Uh, I'm behind the board, I think. it's If it's working. We are uh, we're we're trying a new greeting that's Planet Husky and we're also experimenting really, with our sound system. Really good
1: one. It's a
0: really good one. Thank you. As always we have a great show for you and why don't we jump right in with some Husky headlines to find out what's the latest from Yukon Nation. Julie.
1: (laughs) You are mixing way too many metaphors, Tom. (laughs) So we had some sustainability and green campus news last episode. And going along that same line, UConn announced this week that we're joining 16 other leading North American research universities in the newly established University Climate Change Coalition, also known as UC3, an effort of nonprofit organization Second Nature. UC3 aims to promote climate action and resilience by leveraging the strengths and skill sets of its member schools. As I said, we're nationally recognized for our efforts to be a greener campus, And President Susan Herp says that universities play a key role in finding solutions to the challenges of climate change, which she thinks could be one of the most important challenges of this century. In addition to our research, innovation, and policy development efforts, Herp says universities can lead in this area by making sustainability a key piece of our mission and identity, which UConn has done. So that's really exciting. And I also just want to mention briefly that the Swing Tree, the location of the Swing Journal, which we talked about a few episodes ago, is undergoing some treatment because it's sick. The swings have been temporarily removed from the Asian black birch tree while arborists try to restore it to health. So don't worry, huskies. The swings should come back to their rightful home very soon.
0: All right. Well, we hope so anyway. Ken, what's happening?
2: We're just abundant with consortiums and coalitions. (laughs) Just earlier this week, the Yukon Humanities Institute announced that it will lead a consortium of 11 northeast colleges and universities to form the New England Humanities Consortium, which will focus on programming centered in such fields as history, language, art, literature, and philosophy. And this is made possible with a $100,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This is the first consortium of its kind in the region and uh, will promote intellectual collaboration, interdisciplinary exchange, and innovative educational programming for faculty, students, and the regional, national, and global communities that they serve. Uh, my Michael Lynch, who is the director of uh, UConn's Humanities Institute, he's a philosophy professor and will be the executive director of this new coalition. And there are 11 founding institutions, Amherst, Colby, Dartmouth, Northeastern Tufts, UConn, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, Wellesley, and Wheaton.
1: We are in good company.
2: So it's a very prestigious roster of higher education institutions in the region.
0: That sounds very good. I don't have any coalition or consortium news, <laughs> but I do have news from Yukon Avery Point where this week we are recommissioning the research vessel which is one of the boats actually I'm sorry ships they're very very particular about that ships yes. not boats. One of the <laughs> you ships You
1: should all see Tom's face right now. One of the it's ships the that
0: we use to conduct research in Long Island Sound and cool. the uh, there, this is what's called a midlife re- renovation for the boat The boat's been around for 20 years. It had
1: a crisis.
0: It had a crisis. And uh, now the the size of the boat has extended from 76 feet to 90 feet. The Mm. amount of lab space aboard has doubled. And the number of bunks has gone from 12 to 18. What this means is that they can now be out on missions for up to 14 days, which extends their ability to gather data. And not just for us, but also for people who charter the boat, which includes, for example, the U.S. Navy you may have heard of (laughs) among navies. And the U.S. Geologic Survey and NOAA. Cool. N- not of the Arc fame, but the organization that tracks uh, <laughs> global what, climate. What, what,
2: what about Jimmy Buffett? Can he chart the boat? I don't
0: think he can, but I'll, I I want Jimmy Buffett. On I want double of our check. Boats. But I want to be very clear that we're recommissioning, not rechristening, because to rename a boat is very bad luck, as I was told by the folks oh, at Every Point. Oh,
1: so much fun boat stuff. Ship. Ship, Ship thank you. Ship trivia. Ship. Ship. Vessel. Vessel research. So it's Yukon. Are our other ones like Yukon 1, Yukon 2? No, the other one's
0: called the Lowell Wiker. We have a, a piece that uh, I'm very proud of that we want to uh, play for you right now. Julie's going to tell us what that is.
1: Yes. A couple weeks ago, Tom and I had the privilege of interviewing Max Schachter, who is the father of Alex Schachter, a 14-year-old who was tragically killed in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Max was here because the Yukon marching band paid tribute to Alex during the halftime show of the first football game of this season, playing Alex's favorite song, Chicago's 25 or 6-4, to 4, and they got into formation and spelled Alex out in the field. Alex was a huge Yukon fan. His late mother, Deborah Goldberg Schachter, was a Yukon alum, and Alex visited campus with his aunt and uncle during summer growing up. He wore a Yukon sweatshirt all the time and dreamed of being in the marching band and Yukon Admissions actually sent Alex an acceptance letter after he died and welcomed him as an honorary Husky. So we first asked Max to tell us about Alex.
3: Alex was a little boy he loved. He loved sports. He loved band and uh, he loved to be with his family. He was a little boy that was uh, you know really growing up and learning how to Manage his life, and it's just uh, so sad that it all just is gone and that he's not here anymore. He was on the Parkland Recreational Basketball League, and all he played all of his friends. He didn't care about being on a winning team. He cared about being and playing with his friends. We drafted all of his friends to be on his team. And then my father, Alex's grandfather, played the trombone in college at, at Ohio State. When Alex was uh, going into middle school, our next door neighbor who was the president of the band parent association at the time said that Alex should try out for the band. And I know how much I liked it. I played the saxophone in high school and, and I know that it's, it's really good for kids. He he tested and he it was a scale of one to five, and you try all the instruments, and he got a five on the on the trombone. And then he was talking to my father, what what instrument should I do? And my dad was telling him, you know, all the great experiences that he had. And so Alex really took to it. In seventh and eighth grade, I knew that in high school, the marching band doesn't use the trombone. They use the euphonium. So I said, well, Alex, how would you like to get a head start on high school and learn how to play the euphonium? before he even got there and he said that's a great idea dad by eighth grade he was first chair mr scott would would take any any music that alex loved and teach him and alex's favorite song was 25 or 6 to 4 an old song i guess you know i I love the 70s and so (laughs) i used to always have that on and and he loved it too When he got to high school, it was very difficult because that marching band in high school, they practice a lot more than middle school. They have a band camp two weeks after school starts and two weeks before school starts. They're out there in the Florida hot sun from 8 in the morning till 5 at night. It was hard for Alex in the beginning because he was a little scrawny kid. And you had to hold that instrument up, that euphonium, for a long period of time. And it's difficult to to get your marching down and focus on the music and holding your instrument up. He noticed that as he practiced more and as he put more effort into it, he became a lot better. And in October of 2017, was the state championship and Marjorie stoneman douglas had always come in second place to a very talented school north of us called park vista uh, park vista was uh, a fine arts school that's all they did they had a tremendous uh, amount of support from their parents and, and a big budget they never could beat park vista but Alex's first year, we went against them in the state championship and they won. And so uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas marching band, the Eagle Regiment became the state champions for the first time ever. It was Alex's first year. So uh, he must have been the good luck. And
0: Alex had a, a, a connection to UConn, like an intense connection, right? I mean, probably there are kids who go to high school literally on campus here who probably don't have the same connection.
3: Yeah. What do you think accounts for that? His mom went to UConn. His uncle went to UConn. Every time that he would come to the northeast for the summertime and uh, visit his relatives you know his uncle Paul would take him to campus here and he was a big Celtics fan Um, I think what would really was a neat experience for him was when his uncle and his aunt Patty brought him to the ice cream store here on campus and he met he met Ray Allen Ray Allen was in there with his girlfriend and um, Alex and his brother, Ryan, just like their, their head almost exploded <laughs> there. Their idol was sitting right right in front of them. And so they asked Ray if they could take a picture. And he was kind enough to uh, take a picture with the boys. And then Alex, you know, just loved the, the sports programs and the, the basketball. And um, he always wore this Yukon this sweatshirt. I tried to get him. I said to him, "Alex, I said if you wear the same sweatshirt every day, people are going to think that you don't have any. I don't buy you any other clothes." <laughs> and he says, "Dad, he says it does. He says, I don't care. He says it's the most comfortable sweatshirt I have." And I, he didn't care. So, but he always wanted to come to Yukon and be a Husky uh, and follow in his his family's footsteps.
1: So, with all that, what was it like for you when you got that letter, that acceptance letter for Alex?
3: It, it was it was crazy. I was I was floored. This was early on when when my life was just. I was just trying to come to grips with the enormity of the tragedy to hear the news i was like oh my god you know some some good news something people notice people care and uh it really touched our family um and it was it was a beautiful gesture of kindness to to show that you know they noticed that alex loved yukon and um there are no words i was i was just taken aback by it i had never heard of something like that happening before and um i don't even know if if uconn's ever done that before so um it was a really really sweet gesture and um and then they wrote me this letter stating that the band was going to put a, a, a ribbon on on all their uniforms and they were going to remember alex at every game it was amazing.
0: It was amazing. And and tonight, the, the marching band is going to pay special tribute uh, by playing uh, 25 or 6 to 4 yeah. at the opening game, the first game of the football season. What are you going to be thinking about during halftime?
3: I'm probably going to be crying. Um, I think this happened because in my eulogy, I mentioned that Alex loved Yukon and he loved Chicago and that was his favorite song and then Chicago found out found that out and then when they came to uh, the Parkland area they reached out to us and they donated over a thousand tickets to to the Parkland community Mm -hmm. for for teachers kids therapists to come law enforcement first responders I gave out every ticket I wanted everyone to come to, to celebrate this and have, have a good time, even in the midst of this horrible tragedy. That was wonderful, but I haven't been to a marching, I haven't seen any marching band perform since Alex performed his, um, his state championship and he won. So it's going to be very emotional for me uh, to, see, to see a marching band perform um, because I know Alex would have uh, wanted to be there. It's going to be very touching, and I, I really appreciate it. And I, I want to thank all the kids for doing it, and, and also Dr. Mills very, very much.
0: One of the ways that you, you've responded to this terrible tragedy is by working to, to make it less likely that it'll happen again in other places. Could you tell us about Safe Schools for Alex and, and the work that you're doing?
3: Yeah, that's my passion right now. And after um, after February 14th, I, I quit my job, and I, I set out on a mission to try to... Uh, find out how I could make Marjorie Stoneman Douglas safe because um, Alex's brother was a senior there at the time and Alex's sister is going to be there in a couple of years. And in in my attempt to make Marjorie Stoneman Douglas safe, uh, I tried to find standards or, or best practices that we could use to fortify our school and, and make it safe for all the kids because Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is a campus of over 3,000 kids. It was just Unbelievable to me to realize that there were no standards. There are no national school safety best practices. In the last, you know, six months, I've been traveling the country. I I testified in front of the uh, at the White House uh, two weeks ago in front of the Federal Commission on School Safety. Um, I've met with probably thirty-five to forty different congressmen and senators, including the Vice President, all the cabinet officials, telling them that I know that we can make our schools safe. The schools are doing it now. My goal is to create these best practices, and then once I have these best practices, and, and I'm, I'm very close to, to actually doing that in conjunction with the Department of Justice. Once we have these best practices, then I want to travel around the country to help schools make them safe, and also I want to start issuing grants to schools that that can't afford to make their schools safe.
1: And you've also established the scholarship uh, in Alex's name here for future band members. Why did you decide to honor Alex's life that way?
3: Well, because, you know, I know how expensive college is. I started a scholarship at Marjory Stoneman Douglas to keep Alex's memory alive, and it, it just made a lot of sense. It's it's hard. These kids have have huge debt coming out of college, and if Alex can help a little bit and uh, and we could have a scholarship so that every child that comes in to UConn has an opportunity, the same opportunity that, that everyone else has, irregardless of their financial situation. I want to help everyone, and I know that Alex would want to also. One of my other missions today is to raise an additional 25000 If we could raise an additional 25000 into the Alex Schachter Memorial Scholarship Fund, uh, we would have enough money to indefinitely have this scholarship and have children benefit from Alex's life. Even though he's not here, he would, he would be here in spirit forever. Um, and especially at yukon so that's my goal it doesn't matter if you could uh, donate five dollars or ten dollars or whatever amount every little bit helps and it will help keep alex's memory alive and help yukon you can donate in in one of two ways you could text u c m b so that's yukon marching band to 41444 and then also you could do it by going on the website and that's s dot dot edu backslash Schachter, and that's S C H A C H T E R.
0: Well, Max, thank you so much for speaking with us about this. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that was really great, and Max is a very impressive person. I can't imagine uh, having to go through what he's gone through. Um, so, our, our thanks to him for sitting down with us.
2: And that story and the photo of the band spelling out Alex's name uh, went viral on the uh, newswires. Uh, after the football game. Yeah, it was a beautiful uh, was tribute. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. So just to remind everybody, uh, if you do want to donate to support the Alex Schachter Memorial Scholarship, you can do it by text, by texting the number 41444, and in the body of your text, put UCMB, and then it'll prompt you how to donate.
0: All right, anyone who's uh, keeping up with the news knows that there's a lot happening on the Korean Peninsula these days, a lot going on diplomatically, militarily. Ken, you're going to tell us about a professor here at UConn who's an expert on all things Korean and and... What she thinks about the current situation,
2: Alexis Dudden is an internationally recognized scholar of the history of Korea and Japan, who is widely published in scholarly journals and she's quoted in the media all the time and Places like the New York Times, NPR, Vice, and The Economist. Uh, She served as a Fulbright Scholar at Yonsei University in Seoul during the 2016-17 academic year. And she went back to South Korea in late August. I spoke with her when she arrived back in stores for the beginning of the new semester here to discuss what she learned
4: interestingly to the person all my colleagues in south korea said that the emphasis for south koreans right now has shifted away from the peace process with north korea and onto the south korean economy Job reports came out, economic indicators came out, the South Korean economy needs a desperate shot in the arm. At the same time, the South Koreans and North Koreans held family reunions for the first time in three years and really gripped the nation's attention when once again these truly tragic stories dominate the news cycle to tell of families that have been ripped apart for now 73 years. People did not expect, anticipate any way that the border would remain so rigid. They, they fled during war, often picking one sibling who was smaller, uh, leaving boys behind with fathers. But really, these stories played out again. So while South Koreans were on the street concerned about their economic realities, they were also aware that this larger process is still very much dominating their atmosphere. President Moon is really trying to hold a balance by saying, well, we need to move forward with South Korea's economic principles. The nation's companies are largely helping him in this regard. Samsung pledging hundreds of thousands of new jobs, POSCO Steel, th- hundreds of thousands of new jobs in an effort to really keep South Koreans actively engaged in the broader picture, which is the peace process with North Korea and what that means for the region and the world. On the peace process,
2: there's been much changed on that as well with the uh, scheduled visit by uh, Secretary of State Pompeo back to Korea being changed and the question of the declaration of the formal end of the war that still exists before denuclearization could take place. And then reports that Kim Jong-un would like to have all this taken care of while President Trump is still in office. I know as a historian, you tend to want to look back at what's happened and analyze. But in real time, uh, what do you see?
4: I think both Kim Jong Un and President Trump recognize a similar method of dealing with problems in one another, which is they want the spotlight, they want to grab it, and they see a chance. This has all of their handlers, all of the people who've made an industry out of so-called alliance management, managing North Korean tensions, very nervous arguably for good reasons. There's a deep history of of North Korean leaders making promises and then not fulfilling them. At the same time, there's also a deep history of the United States, South Korea, Japan, making promises that have failed to be fulfilled, thus creating the conditions for North Korea to forge ahead with its nuclear program. Uh, If Kim Jong-un could tweet, I think he would love to be able to tweet the way Donald Trump does. He is not in a position to have that kind of access to social media transmission. But he's making similar kinds of bold statements to his own people. He's quoted as saying the other day, he personally has never spoken ill of Donald Trump. This lands at a moment when the American news cycle is dominated by the impending publication of Bob Woodward's book, with lots of people speaking ill of Donald Trump. And we know that Donald Trump would prefer to work with someone who's only going to praise him. The two men have really met one another and I think arguably have decided that this is their chance. If there is any success taken away from the Singapore moment, which has been derided for a host of reasons, Kim Jong-un now finds himself in a position in which were he to launch a ballistic missile, or conduct a nuclear test, he would lose international approval for even the smallest of efforts that he and his government appear to be trying to make to re-enter the world community. In the meantime, the South Koreans would like to be able to control this process more than the pullback that seems to be happening from Washington. Now, I l- landed literally as the announcement of Secretary Pompeo's post trip being postponed was taking place. So colleagues with whom I met the next day, who'd been planning to meet with Secretary Pompeo said, well, you know, we're just getting used to this, we're, we're getting used to Trump's grandstanding, and we'll just now play wait and see. In that same moment, they still are going ahead with the north-south process on their own. The problem is, for all intents and purposes, the United States really does control this situation. But President Moon will be flying to Pyongyang. And I think it would be very much in Kim Jong-un's interests to give him a list of North Korea's nuclear capabilities, facilities, where the weapons are, how many there are. Do I expect it to be full? No, that would be not in his state's interest. But something more than just a commitment to denuclearization is, is going to be necessary to convince the hardliners in Washington to give a little to South Korea and move forward with the process.
2: In looking at the apparent reduction of tension in the region of the Korean Peninsula, Professor Dudden notes that Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has proposed increasing his military budget.
4: Now many Japanese find this perplexing because if in fact there's a chance to defuse the potential for war in the region why commit so much of Japan's budget to a weapon system that if North Korea isn't going to be the threat then what are we really talking about and I think that's what a lot of this is really bringing into relief that this all of this North Korea threat theory all of this North Korea is the you know the the existential threat to world peace really is laying bare that the region internationally is repositioning itself vis-a-vis a a rising China. Um, And so that's really the larger thing that Japanese are concerned with. And so North Korea is a very small piece in that much larger future being imagined.
2: But we've also talked about the fact that the United States thinks that when peace is finally declared, their military presence will be less, possibly lessened, as a result of that, and that affects United States security. As we've been learning from some of the Woodward information that uh, that the president was asking, why do we need to be be here for these things?
4: Exactly. And what's really interesting is that while. It, for the first time, and if it's true, then it is rather startling. Kim Jong-un apparently the other day said to his South Korean counterparts, to the South Korean negotiators, that a peace declaration for the Korean peninsula does not necessitate the withdrawal of the 28,500 American troops stationed in South Korea. Now, no North Korean leader has said that. In fact, it's usually been the opposite. So I think what Again, I can't answer for Kim Jong-un. He doesn't write much. (laughs) And so as as a historian, it's difficult to gauge what's actually going on other than – Clearly, he's allowed some uh, information to be played on state media uh, that positively portrays peace efforts. Now, again, does that mean he's giving up his nuclear weapons? No. Um, but he's saying that the U.S. does not have to withdraw its troops. So, you know, we have a nuclear umbrella in effect for South Korea, and that justifies for North Korea their maintenance of a nuclear uh, capability. if. South Korea and North Korea are able to achieve a more stabilized detente in the form of of a declaration to end the Korean War that doesn't immediately overnight mean unified Korea and I think that's a stumbling block that a lot of people who've been working in this field for a long time keep having and keep not making clear is that Koreans today especially younger South Koreans are not asking for unification they're asking for a stable two-state system until until the situation can be uh, dialed down, until there can be economic integration between North and South, we're not talking about uh, a one Korea, the way that for much of the 70 years, the past 70 years, we really have been talking about. And I think Kim Jong-un is acknowledging that if in fact he did say, well, the U.S. can keep their troops, we're gonna keep our army, But it doesn't mean we're going to go to war tonight from my perspective the most important thing to do is to figure out how to dial the tension down so that there is no error made that leads to a military scenario uh, that would only be catastrophic there is no minimal small-scale war that would be fought in in the event of something terrible like that it would be a very large event very drastically and fast It's not a question of who wins. That's all been played out. But it's a question of avoiding that with guarantees such as security agreements, regime survival agreements, which can best be done through an end to the Korean War. Then we move forward.
2: Well, as we know, things are fluid in this situation, yes. so uh, she, as a historian, tends to look backwards and analyze what happened. She's in the moment now, so it's kind of interesting for her to be involved with the history that she will eventually be thinking about down the road.
1: That's we're, very meta and in Inception.
0: We're, re- we're recording this a week in advance, so hopefully, like... uh it's still, it, relevant. Yeah, it's still relevant. Yeah, still relevant. Events haven't... Hopefully, there hasn't been that, you know, a nuclear war. Good God. Now we come to the the portion of our program that's normally reserved for Tom's, Tom's History Corner. Tom's going to
1: break all of our hearts right now. Um,
0: but you know what? Just like Francis Fukuyama said, we've come to the end of history. Oh my God. No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there's no History Corner this week because I actually went out, I got off my duff and went out and uh, did an interview with uh, journalism professor Mike Stanton, uh, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, worked at the, uh, the Providence Journal, did extensive coverage of the colorful ex-mayor buddy Cianci. I believe that's the... That's the adjective people like to use. Colorful, yeah. Colorful. That's a good one. Uh, Wrote, in fact, a, a great book about him called The Prince of Providence. Well, Professor Stanton has a new book out. It's called Unbeaten, and it is a biography of the boxer Rocky Marciano who is the only uh, heavyweight champion to retire with an undefeated boxing record. But the book is much more than just about one man. It's sort of about a kind of vanished America. Rocky Marciano was a, a son of immigrants, grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, the shoe capital of the world. The whole world that Professor Stanton evokes really well, is just it's kind of vanished in a lot of ways, but it's fascinating to, to learn about, for example, the influence of organized crime, which is something that Professor Stanton and I talk about. So uh, without further ado, let's hear from Professor Mike Stanton on Rocky Marciano.
5: I was fascinated by the era that Rocky grew up in and that he was champion in, and I wanted to really recreate America in the middle of the 20th century after World War II. It was going through tremendous changes, you know, the uh, factories were booming, the good times were rolling after the war, and boxing was the centerpiece of American life, and it was also kind of the underbelly of American life with the infiltration of the mafia in a way that even though they'd always been around boxing, they really you know seized control with all the new TV money flowing in after World War II. And to me boxing was really a window into that American way of life and all the changes with immigration and ethnicity and race. And so I wanted to also look at the the history of immigration and it was interesting to me he was born in the early 1920s in Brockton, Massachusetts, the shoe factory uh, capital of the world. And you know back then Italians were reviled And you look at the national immigration debate today, and it was really echoed back then. There were three Harvard graduates who founded the Anti-Immigration League, and they targeted Congress to basically shut the door to southern European immigrants, specifically Italians, who they called a race of pickpockets and thieves, and they should be fingerprinted and, and sent back to Italy. And so Rocky grew up in that atmosphere, and Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested on the Brockton trolley not far from Rocky's grandfather's house. So he goes from that to now we're in the 1950s, and he's the all-American boy. Um, he's the great white hope, the first white champion since uh, Joe Lewis had knocked out James Braddock back in the late 30s. He goes to the White House, meets Ike. He goes to the White House, meets Eisenhower. The Speaker of the U.S. Uh, you know, House of Representatives calls him a symbol of American might and masculinity in the face of the Cold War. And, you know, he's that all-American boy hero, you know, he and Joe DiMaggio.
0: One of the things you do really well is talk about that underside of it, and maybe I was naive, uh, but I had no idea the extent of organized crime's involvement with boxing in general and with, with Rocky Marciano's career in particular. Could you talk about that a little bit?
5: One sports writer said that uh, Rocky Marciano stood out in boxing like a rose in a garbage dump, and he also called boxing uh, the red-light district of sports. It attracted a lot of people because they were attracted to the violence, the primeval struggle, um, the betting action that surrounded it, which, of course, you know, the mob flows where the money goes. And gambling and fixed fights were, were a staple of the mob. And then after World War II, television comes along. And boxing and I Love Lucy are the two things that really sell TV sets to millions of Americans. Um, after the war, when we go from virtually no one having TVs to almost everyone having TVs. And all that TV money, you have the you know, weekly uh, fights from Madison Square Garden, and they're sponsored by Gillette Razors and perhaps Blue Ribbon Beer. And all this money is flowing in, and the mafia goes after it. Just like after World War II, they went onto the waterfront uh, in, in the docks to control the, the shipping. Uh, they went into boxing big time.
0: There's a, there's a great photograph in the book uh, where he's just landing a punch on, I think, Jersey Joe Walcott. And, like, he's just literally rearranging the features of his face. Because boxing is not nearly as popular today as it was then, people may not realize how brutal the sport was and how remarkable it was for someone to retire without a single loss. <laughs> I mean, is, is that kind of why he, in addition to the, the all-American stuff, is that why he still kind of looms large as a figure in American sports?
5: I think so, and not just that he was history's only unbeaten heavyweight champion, 49-0, and 0, but that he did it without a lot of the skills and gifts that most boxers had. You know, he was clumsy, he was awkward, he was short, and he didn't have a lot of grace. You know, his, his his trainer said that I got a guy with two left feet and he's balding and stoop-shouldered and he don't look so good with the moves, but his opponents don't look so good on the canvas. And he overcame those uh, shortcomings with, you know... a explosive punch that his trainer nicknamed the
0: Susie q and he he retires i mean kind of at the peak right i mean he he steps away from it he could have had a few more years in boxing certainly there was a lot more money to be made
5: well that's another striking thing about his story is so many athletes don't know when to walk away and rocky you know he was a high school dropout his mother didn't want him to go into boxing because it was so savage like a lot of italian mothers and, he, and she wanted to be a singer or a dancer. And he said, Ma, I can't sing and I can't dance, so boxing is my way out of the shoe factories. But he had the presence of mind. So he was a high school dropout, but he had that presence of mind. And he saw what happened to other fighters. You know, Most of them don't make it to the top. Um, a lot of them wind up penniless, um, some brain damaged. And he was, he was petrified of those things happening to him. And on top of that, he was really getting fed up with the mob control. And his mobbed-up manager, who was siphoning money off of his purses, and he was really bitter about that. And he was getting burnt out because he trained like a monk. That was part of his success. So finally, at the height of his uh, career, forty-nine and zero. You know, everyone says go for a nice round fifty. He walks away, and he never comes back. He resists that temptation that he saw Joe Lewis fall into of, you know, keep coming back, and then eventually he's a shell of himself. And in fact, Rocky is the one who ends Lewis's career for good when he knocks him through the ropes at Madison Square Garden. The last 13 years of his life became really fascinating to me, just how he's wandering through this changing American landscape. We're going from the black-and-white 50s to the kaleidoscopic 60s, and he's still a household name. I found outtakes of the Beatles' uh, recording session in the mid-1960s, and, uh, you know, Paul and John are joking about Rocky and his training and his punch. And... So he's kind of wandering through this landscape of a changing America, trading on his, his
0: fame. And he, uh, talking about that sort of the last phase of his career, it's interesting because he symbolized that sort of 1950s, wholesome, but he forges a friendship with uh, Muhammad Ali, who in a lot of ways culturally had, was symbolizing the opposite of that in the late yes. 60s, right?
5: And that was another thing I found fascinating, I discovered in my research, was the, the surprisingly strong bond that he forged with Muhammad Ali. You've got the the white conformist from the 50s and the black militant from the 60s and he really gets to know ali when ali is suspended from boxing for refusing the draft to fight in vietnam and he's fighting the government and he can't box and he turns to other ways to make money and this florida promoter comes up with this wacky idea that why don't i you know film Ali fighting Marciano and we'll edit the film and put it in the theater and it'll be a computer fight because we fed all their statistics into a big computer and you know spit out the scenarios of who would win and we'll keep it a secret so the public will go and they get together in Miami in the summer of 1969 and this is a few weeks after a judge has ordered Ali to go to prison and he's he's out on appeal and they spar and surprisingly Rocky really identifies with the struggle he's going through and he relates it back to his own childhood and how Italians were were treated and he says you know hang in there you're just you know you're you're marching to your own beat and you're going to face slack but hang in there and then um Ali says that he was the only white fighter that he really respected and one day during a break in the sparring they start talking about the race riots in America And, you know, they say, what if you and me, a white man and a black man, got on a bus and rode to Watts and Detroit and all these, you know, burning ghettos and talked about racial harmony? And Ali got really excited. He says, would you do it? Would you do it? And Rocky's like, yeah, I would do it. And two weeks later, Rocky is killed in a plane crash. And uh, Ali's wife told me that it was the only time that she ever saw him cry when he heard the news.
0: If you like what you heard, Mike Stanton will be talking about his book and reading from it at the Yukon Bookstore in Stores Center on Thursday, September 27th. So if you're in the area, stop by. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this action-packed episode of Yukon 360. Uh, If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed. I don't know why Uh, you haven't done so. Tell your friends, et cetera, et cetera. You can find us on Twitter.com at Yukon360. Nope. No, <laughs> at, can't. UConn Podcast. at UConn Podcast. Yeah, somebody's squatting the name UConn 360 yeah. as we learned. Yeah, at UConn Podcast. Thank you. Uh, you can find me at TJ Breen. Um, Julie, where can people find you? And is there anything new you want them to know?
1: Yes. Um, I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. I want to tell them. We have a very exciting announcement, Tom, don't we?
0: Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> clearly, Tom's really excited about it. I know. Laser um, focused. We're going to be doing a live recording of our podcast during homecoming this year.
0: Yay.
1: Details to come, but you can, um, it's during the day on a Friday. So the chances of people not on campus coming are slim other than those who are here for homecoming reunions. But um, you can find out more about all the homecoming things. I think it's October 26th to 28th.
0: Yes, we'll be doing it uh, the October
1: 26th. 26th. Yep, but homecoming goes all weekend with the football game and 5K and various other events at s.ucon.edu/slash come home.
0: Ken, uh, is there anything? Where can people find you and what do you want them to know?
2: I will be at UConn today, as always, uh, for the time being. And we're working on a uh, another expansion of the UConn 360 we're for franchise. a growing empire. Yes, uh, we, which we will announce when we have the details finalized. In the near future, as we say.
1: I don't know what you're talking about. Sure you do.
2: You just haven't put two and two together yet.
0: And on that cliffhanger, (laughs) we leave you for this week, but uh, tune in next time. Thanks for listening, everyone.